This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked through that door, you was a number. And the inmates understood that. If you're out there and live a past period, you can hear it lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during the execution, it had an impression on them that maybe it was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until we get back to stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get back to them. That was one of the, one of the problems we ran into. You had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to... to Get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated here. My name's Anthony. I'm talking to Sky down in Texas. What's happening, Sky? School is happening, man. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what's happening. Um, but no, things are good. I really wish it wasn't 90 degrees in October, but here we are. Um, oh. So I'm jealous of you guys having fall up there. How's it going? How's it going with you? I'm loving it. And, and fall is like my favorite time of year and it's yeah. spooky, spooky season, spooky, especially spooky here season. at the old pen. We've got a bunch of fun events planned for the end of the month. So everybody check out our events calendar. Come on down. Come watch some fun presentations. Get scared. It's a big Halloween fest here at the Old Pen. Did you guys have one last year? We did, yeah. We're okay. doing something similar. We didn't do Frightened Felons. We had to, you know, it was kind of a, a problematic to have 1,200 people here all at once. So Why? Why would that be a problem? <laughs> I, You know, the, I, I'm not sure I haven't figured that out. In the midst out. of a worldwide pandemic, why would that be an issue? <laughs> I don't know. So we, we've tried to space it out and limit the number. And it'll just be easier for everybody to space out and for everything to be aired out and everybody to have a good time and a safe time. So, yeah, definitely check those out. And hopefully, hopefully next year we can do Frightened Felons again and get our, you know, big Halloween party going. But, you know, it's hopefully being the key word because we said that (laughs) it's been so funny until they go back and listen to our Uh Like our episodes when it first started and we were like, you know, like when this is over or like kind of as it started, like hopefully by the summer things will be normal. (sighs) Oh, 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 it's painful. Oh, so painful. (laughs) What sweet babies we were. I know. So, so optimistic. optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh boy. Anyway, let's, uh, let's get, let's get down to some stories. And I think you are starting today. So who do you have for us? All right, so I have got number 2326, Dolly Underwood, and I would honestly put money down that I at at least once this this podcast, I'm going to call her Dolly Parton on accident. So so sources are her inmate file, um, Ancestry.com records, newspaper.com articles, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, BonnerCountyID.gov, about Bonner County on Idaho.gov, an article called An Underground Mystery by Lindsay Kiebert, uh, courtesy oh. of the Sandpoint Reader on the Bonner County Historical Society and Museum at BonnerCountyHistory.org, NationalAtlas.gov, and Wikipedia. 
So, Dolly Underwood was born Edith Dolly Underwood on February 5th, 1880 in Ridgeway, Pennsylvania to Rufus Alexander and Mary Ford Underwood. She had two older sisters, Stella and Maud, an older brother, Webster, a younger sister, Myrtle, and younger brothers, Evan, Rufus Jr., Leslie, and Samuel. That is nine kids total, if you lost wow. track. So I do think that this is all of her siblings, but they're like they're the middle of their family growth is smack dab in eighteen ninety. It's like in the middle of the eighteen ninety census. So I had to try to piece together the family from two censuses twenty years apart. So I'm Jeez. pretty sure pretty sure I got them all, but there could be siblings somewhere in the middle who maybe died early between, you know, the 20 years uh, of, of 1880 and, and 1900. So she grew up in a Christian household and was raised to go to Sunday school, and she attended secular school until the eighth grade. Her intake form says she left her parents' home when she was 15 years old. Not sure why that is. Two years later, when she's 17 years old, almost 18, on December 24th, 1897, she married Clarence Faust in Florence County, Pennsylvania. Now, Clarence was about three years older than Dolly, and he worked in the logging industry, which I think was very common in Pennsylvania, along with coal mining. Their first child, Lavinia Maud, was born in August 1898. So that's pretty, pretty essentially, that's a honeymoon baby, um, yeah. August 1898 from December uh, 1897. Yeah. Another daughter, Pearl, was born in 1900, and then a third daughter, Goldie, was born in 1902. Between 1902 and 1905, the family moved from Pennsylvania to Stevens County, Washington, which is way up north on the Washington-Canada border, and actually only a few miles from the Idaho border as well. And then in 1905, their son Charles was born. So there are a few things that happened between 1905 and 1912, but I'm... I'm not sure of the order that all of these things happened in or, like, the circumstances behind these things. I know all of them happened. I just don't know the order. So one of the things that happened is that Dolly and Clarence separated. Now, this seems to have happened around 1910, but the only evidence I found of the separation is in, in a newspaper article from 1912. Hmm. Second thing that I know happens is Dolly becomes a landlady of a boarding house in Spokane, which is pretty close to Stevens County, but there is some question as to what kind of boarding this house did. And then a third thing that happens is because of this separation, Dolly begins to develop a relationship with a man named Roe Kahn, who was a general laborer. From an April 1912 article from the Spokesman Review, quote, Charged with running a disorderly house, Dolly Faust, landlady of the Beaton Hotel, 2nd Avenue and Post Street, was arrested last night by detectives Edwards and Buchholz and locked up at the city jail under bonds of $100. Nora Dixon, a waitress from Hilliard, found in the place, was also placed under arrest and locked up on a charge of vagrancy. End quote. So as we know, running a disorderly house most often means a house of prostitution or um, where sex workers would bring their clients. But again, like this is 1912, you know, we're, we're deep in the heart of the progressive era and morality. So the newspapers is not very clear that that is super clear that that's exactly what happens. But just a day or so after her arrest, Judge Stalker from Spokane, quote, refused to accept the testimony of a police witness as binding against Dolly Faust, and the vagrancy charge against the woman was dismissed, end quote. Huh. 
But a month later, the month of May 1912 is going to be a really rough one for Dolly. And so this is an article, again, from the Spokane Chronicle on May 7th, 1912, which broke some very surprising news. Quote, shot by Ro Khan, a laborer with whom she had been on intimate terms, Mrs. Dolly Faust, landlady of the Beaton Hotel, is now at the Sacred Heart Hospital. The bullet passed through her right cheek, through the roof of her mouth, and came out at the bridge of her nose. At the hospital today, it is stated that hemorrhages were continuing and her condition is considered serious. Khan is held at the city jail on a formal charge of assault with intent to commit murder. End quote. Wow. Crazy, right? So, like, kind of from the side upward... Oh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, passed through her right cheek, so he must have been standing to her right, up, and I, that's the thing that I always find so interesting, I, because I don't understand, like, ballistics and trajectory of things, because presumably, I, I mean, I guess unless he's shooting up at her, like, if he's sitting on the ground or something, how it goes, it enters her cheek and goes up through the roof of her mouth, I can't figure maybe, out it, maybe she yeah. was turning to like dodge yeah, him or be. something like yeah, oh, it could be. I but don't know. geez or ducking yeah. like kind of moving to mm, duck mm-hmm. or... yeah oh um either so, way horrible. yeah terrible so an article from the clearwater republican which is from orofino idaho provided some more details so basically on monday night may 6 dolly is sitting in her room reading a book truly just minding her own business and Khan, supposedly in a quote-unquote jealous frenzy, walked in, raised a revolver he had just recently purchased, and fired point-blank at her half-turned profile. So again, she isn't even looking at him when he shoots, and that's oh. why it goes through her cheek. So Khan's trial comes to court in June 1912, and even more details and some interesting defense came out. So from the Spokane Chronicle and the Spokesman Review, they both had detailed articles that came out the same day, but with different details. So from the Spokesman Review, the defense claimed that, quote, he threw a fit and did not know what happened until he had gone from the Beaton Hotel to the Atlanta Hotel five blocks. He said that he went to the Beaton Hotel to get a room in which to have a fit, and the fit came on him before he had received the key to the room, and that in some manner he shot the girl in the head, end quote. So oh. essentially, they're, they're trying to argue that he has, they keep calling it an epileptic fit. So basically, they're arguing he has epilepsy, he's walking, he feels it come on, so he goes to the Beaton Hotel to try to get a room that he can sort of have this fit in and, and no one will bother him. Uh, but the, the fit comes on, and somehow he ends up in Dolly's room and shoots her because of this epileptic fit. Now, according to, again, to the review, Dolly claimed that he had asked her for a kiss, and when she refused, he shot her with a forty-five caliber. He said he had recently bought the gun, so he says, like, yeah, I did have a gun, but he, he'd bought the gun to take to a ranch to shoot coyotes and squirrels with. Again, the Chronicle, the, the Spokane Chronicle is the one who gets a little bit more specific, and the, the title of the article is, quote, says man who shot Dolly Faust is subject to epileptic fits, end quote. So basically, his defense hoped that if they claimed that he was suffering from these epileptic fits, he would be declared temporarily insane. So Dr. Oliver Leisure testified that it was possible for an epileptic fit to make Khan commit a crime while temporarily insane. Now, in this article, again, they cite Dolly's claim that he shot her because she refused to give him a kiss, but the captain of police said he thought Khan had shot Dolly because he thought, quote, she had thrown him down, end quote. Now, believe it or not, so there were several articles detailing all of this event, but I could not find a resolution to the case in the newspaper. Yeah. 
What I found instead was a record of Ro Khan in the Washington State Penitentiary for first-degree assault. I mean, he's number 6596, and so this means he was found sane and also found guilty, but I'm not sure how long he was in prison for. Unsurprisingly, Dolly would bear the scars of this attack for the rest of her life. Uh, you can see it in her mugshot. And so, of course, we'll put that on all of the social medias. So for about another year and a half, Dolly went about her life as a proprietress in Spokane. And the Spokane Chronicle reported on December 4th, 1914, that Dolly had been arrested for vagrancy. This is the only newspaper report I found on this particular arrest, so I'm not sure how that was resolved. If she served jail time, it was for a very short time because she would be making headlines for something completely different in June 1915 in Bonner County, Idaho. So, favorite part, my favorite part. Uh, we're going to pause and take a look at some Bonner County history. So, Bonner County is the second northernmost county in the state, literally, but it's right below Boundary County, of course, called Boundary County because it is literally on the boundary between the U.S. and Canada. So the area was home to the Kalispell and Shalish, Kootenai, and Coeur d'Alene peoples until efforts to put them on reservations prevailed. The Kalispell peoples were pushed either into the Flathead Indian Reservation in western Montana or the Kalispell Indian Reservation in Washington. And then the Kootenai peoples on the Kootenai Reservation, only about 2,700 acres in Bonners Ferry in Boundary County. And then the Coeur d'Alene peoples were put on the Coeur d'Alene Reservation just south of the city of Coeur d'Alene. Now, in 1864, there are two major things that happen in Bonner County history. First is a man named Edwin L. Bonner set up a ferry on the Kootenai River at the current site of, wait for it, Bonner's Ferry. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and the ferry was an important site for travel between Walla Walla and the quartz mines in British Columbia. And of course, this is eventually who Bonner County is named for. Now, the second thing that happens in 1864 is the Idaho legislature created the counties of Lato and Kootenai. Now, the current Bonner County and also Boundary County were part of the original Kootenai County. And there's some very complicated things that happen around the Kootenai and Lato counties, and I actually cover this in the Helen Grace Andrews episode from last season, which is episode two of last season. And so instead of going into all of it again, basically what happens is the act that created Kootenai County was repealed due to lack of settlement in the area in the mid-1860s. So the two counties that were, that were Lato and Kootenai got absorbed back into one large county that retained the Kootenai name in 1881. Then Bonner County was officially established on February 21st, 1907. And so it went from what was the end of the Kootenai County border all the way up to the Canadian border. So when it was first established, it actually was the county that bordered Canada. And Sandpoint was named the county seat, which it has remained. Now, interestingly, there was actually a portion of the current Bonner County that had not been included in any of the counties, whether Bonner, Kootenai, or Lato, and that's because the legislators in 1864 lacked geographical knowledge and sort of accidentally just left that area out. And so when this non-county area was discovered, it got incorporated with Bonner County when it was created. And then Boundary County was eventually created out of Bonner County about 18 years later in 1915. Now, the population was fairly small, but certainly not the smallest in the state. In 1910, the population was around 13,588, and so the 1915 estimate, which is when Dolly's story is taking place, is probably around 13, 
thousand because uh, the population actually drops a little bit in 1920. And then the 2010, so the most recent for sure numbers that we have, at least when I did this research, was 40,877. And the 2020 estimate, which it probably has changed because I wrote this this summer and I think more numbers have officially come out from the census, the 2020 estimate was about 46,817. Mm. So there is an article titled An Underground Mystery by Lindsay Kiebert, which is found on the Bonner County Historical Society and Museum. They give a few details about something that may have happened in Bonner County in the same year that Dolly got into some trouble. So recently, some secret rooms were discovered under the Abbott Building in Sandpoint after the building suffered from a large fire in February 2019, and no one is exactly sure what the rooms might have been used for. What? So one theory is that actually in December 1915, over a hundred years before the fire, apparently a sheriff's deputy broke up a gambling raid, and they blocked all the escape routes, and they cut the phone lines, um, and... One gambler supposedly escaped out the back of the building by sliding down a drain pipe. And I couldn't find a newspaper report about this particular story, but the story comes from local historian Dan Evans. So I don't think this is just necessarily like lore that people just made up. So that's sort of one theory that I wanted to include because it sort of takes place around the same time Um, again. So, you know, 1915, um, we're getting near the end of the Progressive Era, but like... The problem often with sports and other entertainments was that, like, gambling and drinking and all of these vices were associated with it. And so if these rooms were used for gambling, I think it's very possible that to make sure it didn't happen again, the police would have boarded up that whole place and then just left it underneath for, like, no one to find so that they they couldn't keep getting involved in these, like, gambling dens. So Hmm. I thought that was interesting. And actually, about six months before the breakup of this gambling den, they were a little bit busy with Dolly Underwood. So um, in the summer of 1915, Dolly was spending some time maybe living in Sandpoint. I'm not exactly sure what she's doing there. She began to use the name Della Macria, perhaps um, because of some trouble she started getting into. A Spokesman Review article claimed that she said she owned the Mountain View Hotel at Rathdrum, Idaho for a few months in the winter of 1914, but I'm not totally sure if that's true. Then another Spokesman Review article from the 21st of May 1915 stated that a woman named Della McCree, who is very likely Dolly, was arrested in Sandpoint along with another woman, Mabel Brown, for contempt of court. Um, Now, what had happened is both had been subpoenaed in the case against a man named Earl Williams, who had been charged with robbing a lumberjack of $50. And they stated that they didn't show up because Williams' father came to them and told, like, knew they were going to be called subpoenaed and said, you girls better blow. And because of their no-show, Williams was actually acquitted. Because of this, they were charged with contempt of court, sentenced to a fine of $25 each, and one day in jail. A month later, on June 23rd, Della McCree, or Dolly, was arrested in Sandpoint with a man named Harry Hinton. So the couple had gotten into the car of a man named Thomas Elliott, and Harry had pulled out a gun and pointed it at Elliott, forcing him into the back seat of the car with Dolly. And it seems that Dolly then held the gun on him while Harry drove. So Elliot was let out 15 miles outside of Sandpoint, and he ran and telephoned for help. The information was then telegraphed to the authorities of the the town they thought, the sort of the next town that they would have been at, uh, which would have been Priest River. And Harry and Dolly, quote, ran the car at breakneck speed over a dangerous road, end quote. And thanks to this information provided by Elliot, they were arrested at Priest River a few hours later. 
The spokesman review alleged that Dolly or Della was dressed in man's clothing, though they don't really know why she would have done that. And maybe it was more intimidating to be held up by two men instead of a man and a woman. I don't really know. The couple immediately pleaded guilty and waived their preliminary hearing, meaning they would be sentenced immediately. They also admitted to stealing a taxi cab from the Conley Taxi Cab Company in Spokane two weeks previous. Uh, the Spokane Chronicle article named this thief as Dolly Faust, which is how we know Dolly was using the alias Della Macrea, because they said that, you know, if they admitted to it as Della Macrea and this is listing her name as Dolly Faust, then we know that she's using uh, those two names sort of interchangeably. So, Dolly and Harry were sentenced from 5 to 15 years for robbery at the Idaho State Penitentiary on June 25th, 1915, and both entered on June 29th, 1915. So, here are Dolly's statistics. She came in as Dolly Underwood, alias would be Mrs. Dolly Faust, and in parentheses it says that's her true name. In for robbery, serving 5 to 15 years, age when received, 32, born in Elk County, Pennsylvania, legitimate occupation housekeeper, 5 feet 4 and a half inches, complexion medium, weight 122 pounds, color of hair dark brown, and in parentheses it says short, color of eyes are brown, conjugal relations separated, has two children, and she lists them specifically as girls, father living yes, mother living yes, left prisoner's home when 15 years old, has had religious instruction and Sunday school in the Christian church, still belonged to a Christian church, had a common school education, a former imprisonment nun, name of address and nearest relative was her daughter Pearl Faust in Spokane, Washington, and peculiarity in build and feature is just marked as slender, and also the condition of her teeth are poor. Now, it's interesting that she states she only has two kids. She says they're both girls. We know, though that she had three girls and one boy. And according to all of their records, they lived well into the 1990s. Her Bertillon is pretty unremarkable. It states that her nose was broken with a bullet wound, which we know was from the Con Assault in 1912. Now, she was one of only three women to be... And actually, I said in the women's ward, but this is 1915, so the modern building that we know of the women's ward wasn't quite built yet, so it was they were kept in that separate house. The two women who were already there were Geneva Emma Brown, who was in for accessory to murder, and Hattie Kolb, who was in for adultery. Um, and then Mamie Ross, who I covered in the first episode of this season, would join and, of course, be quickly released during Dolly's time as well. Yeah. Now, after she'd been in prison for about two weeks, a reporter from the Idaho Daily Statesman interviewed her and wrote about it in an article titled Nothing Heroic in Demeanor of Woman Hold Up. Now, this is actually an awesome article so bear with me i'm probably going to read the whole thing (laughs) so when asked what was responsible for the details of the crime attributed to her she said quote boob reporters with a desire for sensational newspaper stories end quote she continued to the reporter you are entirely mistaken if you think i did any of these things i am a plain ordinary woman who has never had any such experience my life is an open book as you will find if you question those who have known me for the five years which i have lived in spokane a lot of boob reporters and officers are responsible for that for that bunkum which is an old way to say nonsense story I had nothing to do with the holdup. I was only unfortunate enough to be with the man who did, and he never would have done such a thing if he hadn't been stewed. Too bad you couldn't have proved this during the trial, murmured the reporter. That's another mistake we made, through relying on a bunch of fool officers, replied Mrs. Underwood. They told us the quickest way was for both of us to plead guilty, and they would let us off easy, and look what we got, five years for a 40-minute ride. Why didn't you interfere with your partner when he attempted to hold up the owner of the car? Mrs. Underwood was asked. I guess you would submit to most anything with a gun pointed at you. I have one bullet mark on me, and I didn't care for a second dose. 
She wow. submitted without comment to having her picture taken, but when she jumped when the flashlight went off, the warden remarked dryly, I see you are gun shy. I am that, sure, she replied. Mrs. Underwood says she had been divorced from her husband of many years, and her chief worry while in prison was for her two daughters, 12 and 15 years old, which would have been Goldie and Pearl, who are alone in Spokane. I've always kept them in school, and I have no relatives west to look after them, and no money to help them. I may, if I can make some arrangement, bring them to Boise, but at present they will have to stay where they are, end quote. Here we learn that the two daughters she claims, as I said, are Goldie and Pearl, and Lavinia and Charles lived with their father according to the 1920 census. But, you know, I still think even if they lived with their father, she still has four children. They are still her children unless the divorce was, like, really that bitter, that it was, like, a parent trap situation where it was, like, you take these kids and leave, and I'll take these kids, and, like, we'll never speak again. I'm also not sure when the divorce was between them, but obviously at some point they were divorced. Her intake form says they were just separated, so the divorce maybe was finalized during her stay at the prison. So her time in prison was pretty unremarkable. She applied for a pardon at the end of 1915, but was denied, according to the Daily Statesman. And then actually by March of 1916, so less than a year into her sentence, Dolly was the only woman uh, in the women's part of the prison. In the April session of the meeting of the Board of Pardons in 1916, Dolly was unanimously granted a full and complete pardon after serving two years of her 5- to 15-year sentence subject to good behavior. And she did maintain her good behavior and was released on June 29, 1917. Now, this was just a, a little interesting tidbit that I found. After her release, the Idaho Daily Statesman reported that the women's ward matron was suspended. So the matron was actually supposed to get paid $50 a month with the understanding that the pay would stop once there were no more prisoners in the women's ward. But interestingly, board records kept, quote, show that the salary was reduced the first of the year from $50 to $25, end quote. So I don't know why she got a drop in pay, because this was while Dolly was still in the prison like there were women still in the prison and she lost pay for some reason this isn't directly related to dolly but still some very interesting facts about her partner harry hinton yeah. um so on november 17th 1918 a year and a half after dolly was released harry got out of prison too but he did it without approval from authorities so, from the Idaho Daily Statesman on November 18, 1918, quote, Using yarn furnished to inmates of the Idaho Penitentiary by the Red Cross for knitting sweaters for soldier boys, two prisoners, one a life-termer, braided a rope 25 feet long with which to scale a 20-foot wall and make their escape Sunday morning at 6 o'clock. Harry Hinton and Fred George, alias Fred Gruber, are the men at large, end quote. And Anthony actually covered Fred Gruber in Season 1, Episode 5. So if the name Harry Hinton seems familiar, that is probably why. Yeah, it's one of my favorite escape stories. It's, it's I always so tell that one. Yeah. yeah, so the two fastened a heavy iron hook to their Red Cross yarn rope and covered the hook with a sock to soften any noise it would make when they threw it over the wall. And when they threw it over the south wall of the prison, the hook eventually caught on a guardrail and they climbed out of the prison. Bloodhounds traced the scent of the two to the woodyards of the Boise Payette Lumber Company, where authorities believe the two hid out until a westbound train left at 11.45 Sunday morning. Now, the Daily Statesman actually declared this was Hinton's second escape from the Idaho State Penitentiary in eight months. He had once tried escaping from a road camp near the Barber area of Boise. Um, after this escape, he joined the Army. He was first sent to Texas, then a military post in Oklahoma before he was discovered and sent back to Idaho. And I actually couldn't find any details detailing the return to the state penitentiary after this escape or, like, when he ever actually got out. But on October 1st, 1917, four months after her release, 
Dolly married a man named Jesse Scoble in Spokane. Now, Jesse was about nine years younger than Dolly, to which I say good for her, and he actually was also a two-time resident of the Idaho State Penitentiary. He was in once in 1911 for grand larceny, and then uh, again in, in 1914, also for grand larceny, and this specifically was for cattle stealing. Um, I couldn't find um, what the first grand larceny charge was for. Huh. Now, I'm I'm not sure if the two of them met because of the penitentiary. It's possible that because the women's ward was not quite the, the women's ward that we have today, the women and men might have mingled a little bit more than they did in later years, but obviously it's not the level of mingling when we saw when men and women were kept together, um, <laughs> yeah. like like we saw with Josie Kensler. So I don't, I don't know, and maybe they met after they both were out of prison, if someone was like, oh, I know someone who was in, and I don't know what happened. But they were actually married for the next 30 years. Wow. Um, yeah. So, yeah. The, however, the Spokane Chronicle reported that Jesse brought a divorce suit against Dolly in August 1944. I'm, I'm not, not actually sure if the divorce was finalized before Dolly died on December 5th, 1944. Oh. Um, as she died in the state of Washington, I could not find a record that stated the cause of death. She was only 64 years old, so my best guess is some kind of disease or illness, but again, I'm not sure. She is buried in Washington Memorial Park, and Jesse actually died about a year and a half later on April 30th, 1946. So that is the story of our number uh, 2326, Dolly Underwood. Wow, what a life. I, I know. can't believe I. That is the first like woman being shot in mm-hmm. the face, mm-hmm. and I've never really noticed that on her mugshot. So now I will definitely scrutinize that. And, yeah, wow. yeah. I um I remember I was looking back through the biographies I wrote, and at the time I didn't have the the newspapers dot com subscription, and so I couldn't. There wasn't any because it happened in Spokane. There wasn't really anything in the Daily Statesman that appeared about this and so i remember seeing on her bertalon that her nose had been broken from a gunshot wound and i was like what the heck maybe and i think in the biography i was like maybe this happened during the crime no one ever talks about it though and so when i found this i was like oh like she literally got shot in the face by someone else and survived which i honestly i can't even imagine yeah getting shot in the face oh and so like surviving like uh and it passed through the roof of her mouth and like just the the sheer luck of the way that that bullet entered and came out it's like it's truly a miracle that she lived and so Yeah. yeah i can't say i blame her like in that interview when the warden tries to like make fun of her like oh are you gun shy and she had to be like yeah i was shot in the face right so jeez Wow. Well, what yeah. a story, Sky. Yeah. And, you know, as soon as you said Harry Hinton, I, I was like, wait, I know that. Yeah, I heard you That's... be like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you covered that. That's of great. In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair 
and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. Well, uh, I mean, I'm sure, as usual, you have a crazy story for us, so let's hear it. Well, I don't know what it is with this season, but I have just chosen the most tedious, like, hundreds and hundreds of pages of research prisoners i thought i had just an easy quick story for you today but i am covering a man with a very long rap sheet named david nathaniel kidd so my sources of course the idaho statesman newspapers.com was a huge help Library of Congress, Chronicling America, of course, Ancestry.com, Findagrave.com, which had a lot of family history, and Wikipedia articles on Albert Sidney Johnston and Strychnine. Give you a hint as to what we're going to speak about shortly. So, David Nathaniel Kidd was born on July 20th, 1879 in Randolph, Alabama, in the 1880 census, his father, Luke G. Kidd, and mother, Lucy Ann, worked on a farm and were raising six sons, including infant David, and two daughters. Going through ancestry and different census records, I believe that his parents actually had 13 children in all, three of whom would live pretty short lives. His father, Luke, had been a Confederate soldier in the Civil War and a member of the 23rd Alabama Infantry and appeared in Burley, Idaho's South Idaho Press in October 1911, recounting his experience on the battlefield next to Confederate commander Albert Sidney Johnson in the Battle of Shiloh. So Albert Sidney Johnson was considered one of the finest officers in the Confederacy and probably would have risen to the status of Robert E. Lee had he not died at this battle. Luke Kidd told the story of being with Albert Sidney Johnson on the fateful April 6, 1862, when the Confederate forces had launched a surprise attack on the Union Army at Shiloh. Albert led the charge, and they overran the Union troops, but Albert was shot behind the right knee. The bullet would prove fatal, and according to David's father, Luke Kidd, quote, General Johnston endeavored to conceal the fact he had received a fatal shot, fearing the effect upon the victorious army until he became so exhausted from the loss of blood that his sword dropped from his nerveless hand and he was removed from his horse by his staff officers, end quote. He died from blood loss, and soldiers wrapped his body in a blanket and left him in the tent, fearing the loss of morale that would come with his men seeing him deceased. So after taking the ground, the Confederate officer who took command made a mistake by resting overnight, and a troop of reinforcements for the Union Army actually arrived the next morning and led a successful counterattack and defeated the Confederate Army in battle. Now, Luke Kidd's experience, it was really unique that he actually witnessed this great commander's death in battle and it's i don't know i thought it was pretty interesting that the newspaper interviewed him about his whole experiences so you can imagine what all of these children of luke all the stories that they would have heard and uh, some of them even experienced from their father now about half of the kid family actually came to idaho in november 1888 They rode a train to Ogden, Utah, and then took a five-day trip to southern Idaho via a wagon and a team of horses to settle in Oakley, Idaho. And Oakley is in southern Idaho, southeast of Twin Falls, south of Burley. The older siblings stayed in the American South, mostly sticking to northern Alabama, Arkansas, and Oklahoma. Uh, 
David would have worked with his parents in Oakley and the rest of his younger siblings on the farm, and he listed that he didn't have any religious instruction and only had one year of school, but he could read and write. And I believe he was the actually the youngest in the family as the next brother named Blueford Columbus Kidd actually died within a year of his birth in 1882. So his older siblings, Alan and William, back in Alabama, they actually seemed pretty well known by lawmen. Uh, they were busted in the 1890s for counterfeiting and running illegal distilleries. And I couldn't verify if they were sentenced to prison or just spent time in their county jails. But David probably would have heard about their exploits. And, you know, he's a little brother trying to emulate his cool older brothers. He would have his first run-in with the law in the spring of 1897, at the age of 17, going on 18. He and another boy named Frank Marcus were busted after burglarizing a store in their town in Oakley. Now, I couldn't find any information on what store it was or what they took, but by mid-April 1897, they were awaiting trial and sitting in the little jail at Albion, Idaho, with a $1,000 bond. This is 1897, so they could not furnish the funds. And on August 27, 1897, David Kidd was charged with burglary in the second degree and sentenced to the Idaho State Penitentiary. He had turned 18 years old in jail. Warden Van Dorn actually traveled to Cassia County and brought David Kidd to the penitentiary. So... His first intake, David N. Kidd, number 582, received September 24th, 1897, crime burglary in the second degree, sentence two years. He's 18 years old, born in Alabama, occupation. He said Taylor and had served an apprenticeship, which is an important feature to his life. Five feet, eight and a half inches tall. He had a fair complexion. He weighed 145 pounds, had brown hair and gray eyes. He was single, and both of his parents were living and only left home at the age of 18 to come to prison. He had no religious instruction and never went to church or Sunday school. And next to, quote, member of what church now, it says, none, with an exclamation point at the end of it. <laughs> did, did, <laughs> did he fill it out himself? Or was right? he That's just that I, emphatic about it? He must have been emphatic, yeah. Uh, he <laughs> said he had the one year of school and could read and write. He drank moderately had a previous imprisonment in the county jail, and his nearest relatives were his mother and father in Spring Basin, Casha, Idaho. His teeth were good. He didn't wear a beard and wore a six-and-a-half-size shoe. He had moles on his abdomen and back and small scars on his face and shin and a birthmark near his right nipple. So I couldn't tell you everything that he uh, did in his first incarceration. He probably went to the tailor shop and helped uh, tailor the prison uniforms. But a beautifully written letter came in from his brother Cicero during the spring of 1898. That's a great name. I know. That's like my favorite name. Their names have been solid, except his is very normal. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So Cicero wrote this beautiful letter. It's got five points on why his brother should be discharged. Number one, because he is young and his mind may be influenced for good if better opportunities are afforded. Number two, he's afflicted with a heart failure and labors under a great deal of fear and suffers physical pain together with the smothering, making it impossible for him to rest, at times, for several nights in succession. Three, in view of the fact that after five and a half months shall have elapsed, his time will be served 
and it is better to pardon him, for the reason that he will feel indebted to the people for their kindness and have more regard for himself and the laws of the state. For the object for which he was sent there is accomplished, and a further imprisonment may have a tendency to make him give up all hope of redeeming himself of the stain which taints his character and imparts within him a revengeful disposition. And number five, he is amongst the criminals of the state and a vagabond of the land, and it will not be long before he has grown to manhood and naturally will rely on his own mental resources, which is desired to be shaped and molded while it is possible to control and handle his mind. He didn't get out that year, but during the spring of 1899, more letters rolled in on his behalf from his parents and more from Cicero, his brother, and the parole board read them and agreed. On April 5th, 1899, David's sentence was commuted to be discharged on June 1st, 1899, 23 days ahead of the expiration of his time, with the expectation that he made, quote, no breach of prison discipline, end quote. And actually, the newspaper described him as an exemplary prisoner. So he was released on June 1st, 1899, and returned home. He stayed out of trouble for a little while. In 1900, he lost two of his older brothers. Josephus Kidd had just moved to Hutchinson, Kansas with his wife and six children and was struggling with money. The family got sick, and when he went to pay his rent bill, he requested to defer his payment so he could buy medicine for the children. This was granted, as the newspapers noted, quote, his countenance was so honest and betrayed such pulp that he was permitted to do so, end quote. Unfortunately, he ended up dying of pneumonia on February 20th, 1900. The newspaper article titled Worthy of Sympathy stated, quote, These are rather sad and disagreeable disclosures for prosperity times, end quote. He now has a widow who's raising all of these children. So his, like, so deferring rent for medicine actually helped his family live. Yeah. Oh, So sad. it's like so heartbreaking yeah so like you see the character of this family that's split you get you know half of them are these really good citizens you know like his brother cicero like great farmer really well respected and then they're just a handful that are just kind of problem children they're Uh they're just Uh causing these issues one of his brothers in alabama allen also died in 1900 in lacey spring and I couldn't verify if he was incarcerated at the time of his death or not, but he appears to have been one of the troublemaking siblings over there getting involved in, in bootlegging and counterfeiting. Hmm. Now, David himself couldn't seem to stay out of trouble. He had a romantic interest with a woman in Oakley from his childhood named Agatha Wells. Like David, she came from a larger pioneer family, 14 kids, who came to southern Idaho to farm in the 1890s and settled in Oakley. While he was incarcerated, Agatha was not allowed to speak to David, and by all accounts, her parents did not want her seeing David Kidd ever again. Around the age of 15 or 16, she was actually forced to go with a man 10 years her senior named Harry F. McBride. And soon after... The two were married on July 3rd, 1900. Now, newspaper accounts noted that it was forced, and the marriage was very rocky. Agatha actually applied for a divorce, which Harry, quote, fought desperately, end quote. When David was released from prison, he quickly rekindled the old flame. Uh-oh. Yes. Quote, the woman had taken up again with her first love, 
kid, a fact that no exertion in fighting the application for divorce, end quote. Harry and David met at a New Year's Day dance on July 1st, 1901. A battle between the two. Quote, they exchanged greetings as though nothing had transpired to make them enemies. Kidd asked McBride out to have a drink from a bottle. McBride took a mouthful of what he supposed was whiskey, but it tasted bitter. And he spit it onto the ground, end quote. He then handed the bottle back to David, who smashed it on the ground before walking away. Harry actually returned to the dance floor, but quickly became ill and, quote, fell to the floor, frothing at the mouth like a mad dog, end quote. So after wreathing on the ground in pain in the middle of the dance floor, water was actually rushed over to rinse his mouth, and a doctor was called. It was speculated that had he had taken a full swig of the whiskey, he could have been dead within five minutes, as strychnine was suspected of being the poison in the bottle. David ran out of the dance hall and jumped on a horse, which was pretty suspicious act he was arrested at the fort hall reservation near pocatello by indian police and taken back to the Casha county jail quote news of a romance with poison in it it comes from Casha county it is a story of love temporarily overcome by parental objection with attempted murder as its sequel end quote <laughs> One of my favorite lines. <laughs> That's, I mean, <laughs> worthy of a film, by the way. <laughs> oh, man, it's this is crazy. So strychnine has had many uses throughout history, and in 1901, it was extremely easy to get your hands on it. Mm. One advertisement I found in the Montpelier Examiner in 1901 says, quote, We have strychnine enough to kill every squirrel in Bear Lake County, wholesale or retail, Ryder Brothers Drug Company. End quote. And it turns out that there was a mass call for the extermination of these little critters in Bear Lake County oh, that no. year. Quote, we believe every farmer and rancher should lay in a stock of poison. And just as soon as these vermins make their appearance, commence feeding them medicine. End quote. And they actually share recipes using strychnine, like uh, the following, quote, use flour liberally mixed with sugar and strychnine. The squirrels will eat this mixture at all seasons of the year. Listen, anyone would eat that. <laughs> and it's just sugar and flour? Yeah, I'd eat that. Yeah, that's a biscuit, yeah. Others have found that carrots cut into small pieces and soaked in a solution of strychnine water is a most effective remedy. Others use wheat, end quote. Strychnine is its really bitter, but it takes very little to make it ineffective poison. I read in one article that it said any adult could buy a bottle of crystallized strychnine for 50 cents. And the article followed with a recipe using a potato with a small slit enough for a single crystal of strychnine in it, enough to kill a fiendish gopher. Needless to say, in a farming community regularly dealing with rodents and rabbits, strychnine would have been readily available. And in human... Strychnine poisoning starts within minutes of ingestion with severe muscle spasms, followed by seizures, rapid heart rate, sweating, high blood pressure, agitation, and eventually death through damage to the heart, lungs, brain, or all of the above. It's really dramatic, and witnessing seeing Harry McBride struggle on the dance floor, foaming at the mouth like a wild dog, would have been very traumatizing to the community. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't find any information about the trial, but I know that David pled not guilty to the charge. 
In his first trial in April, it ended with a hung jury. By newspaper accounts, Agatha actually testified against David in the first trial, totally contradicting their hmm. love story. It turns out that in, in the September retrial, she testified that a brother-in-law, her husband Harry's brother, intimidated her and forced her to testify against David. In this September trial, the second one, she actually changed her testimony in David's favor. And I really wish I had the transcripts as the uh, trial, the testimony was described as, quote, the most sensational ever given to a jury in that county, end quote, which it's like, oh, my gosh. That sounds they, great. Crazy, bitter this. love triangle, right? I love it. So after the whole trial, David Kidd was found guilty. Agatha admitted to being in love with David and wanting to end her marriage with Harry, so she was also looking at time in prison for being an accomplice and an attempted murder. Mm. Harry McBride survived the whole ordeal. Mm -hmm. So on September 20th, 1901, while awaiting a sentencing hearing from the judge in the Cache County Jail, David actually sawed his way out of his cell. He escaped the jail on foot. A $100 reward was offered for his recapture, and two days later, he was captured by Oakley ranchers Frank Bedke and Stanley McIntosh on Lamb Creek, about three miles from Oakley. Um, David returned to the jail and found himself, quote, occupying a cell in the jail next to one in which the woman is incarcerated for whom he sought to commit murder, end quote. Oh, they were reunited. They were, just temporarily. <laughs> we can only imagine what they... We're probably talking about a real a Romeo time. and Juliet story. Yeah. He was sentenced to 24 years and three months at the Idaho State Penitentiary. And I actually have not found any evidence that Agatha was charged any further. I think that hmm. she just served a short jail sentence and was released. Now, now, did she and Harry stay married? No, I don't believe so. <laughs> yeah. That's weird. Right, yeah, I, I found that she died in like the 1930s and she had, had a different last name. So I'm not mm. sure when she divorced. The records were actually pretty difficult to find on mm. on her. So mm. the new prison warden, Charles Arney, left for Albion and picked up David for his second stay at the Idaho State Penitentiary. So his second intake, David N. Kidd, number 830, received October 19th, 1901, crime attempting to kill by administering poison and literally that is what attracted me to this story and i was like wow this is interesting oh he was incarcerated a time before this oh okay sentence 24 years and three months age 22 occupation laborer he's five foot nine inches so he grew half an inch from his last incarceration he's 175 pounds so he put on 30 pounds his parents were still living, and he had left home now at 21 years old. In peculiarity in build and feature, they wrote symmetrical, which is something I've never seen. His teeth were good. He sported a small brown mustache, and it noted in his bertillon. <laughs> <laughs> I like that we're both going to just say it differently now. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Uh, that he had marks from smallpox on his chest and back. And from his mugshot, you can see that he has matured into a man since his first incarceration in 1897. So as you may remember, Warden Charles Arney was under fire when David arrived at the institution for using prison labor on his family farm, taking prison goods, and most shockingly, the supposed pregnancy and abortion of Josie Kensler. Ah, uh, Josie. 
Yes, so a lot of controversy went on. Yes. (laughs) So in February 1903, as the trial was going on with Josie, David Kidd actually became a part of the trial about Josie's abortion. Quote, Convict David Kidd overheard a conversation between (gasps) William Thomas and Mrs. Kensler after the preliminary examination. Mrs. Kensler told Thomas, said the witness, that he had misled her when he told her she would get her liberty if she changed her statement. Witness also said he heard Deputy Warden Donnelly tell Thomas, who had asked when he was going to get out, that he, Thomas, had done Warden Arney a good turn and to be patient and he would soon secure his liberty, end quote. William Thomas had also said that Warden Arney had promised him freedom if he could get Josie to change her statement in his favor. And it was mm-hmm. a big part of the trial. And if you haven't listened to episode two, on Josie Kensler from season one, Sky does a fantastic job discussing the trial and the ousting of Warden Arnie and several of his guards and other administrators. Isn't that so funny that we like did inmates who had like stories and inmates that we've done before? That's so. I funny. know it's so meta now that yeah, totally. if, if we've had listeners from the beginning, like hopefully you're all going, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> If you're new, go back and listen and yeah. join us. <laughs> join, join us. He would state later on uh, that during his incarceration, he actually learned to tailor clothing while serving time at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You know, as a kid, he had done a little bit of an apprenticeship, mm-hmm. but he really mastered and honed his skills while incarcerated. Unlike his first incarceration, the second had no letters from family or businesses to the parole board. It appeared that he had burned his bridges with the attempted poisoning. Mm -hmm. He began applying for a release in 1905, but it was refused. And he applied for the fall 1908 Board of Pardons with Josie Kensler, but this time a letter arrived on his behalf that is unfortunately not in his file. Mm. According to the April 8th, 1909 Idaho Statesman, this letter written by Harry McBride said, quote, states that several times since the prisoner was sentenced to the penitentiary, he, Harry McBride, has been similarly affected by taking a drink of whiskey and has been thrown into convulsions. Six members of the first and ten members of the second jury signed a petition for pardon, end quote. Harry is saying, he's admitting that he doesn't think that he was actually poisoned, that he might have some weird, severe allergic reaction to whiskey or some sort of epileptic seizures that are spurred on from the taste of whiskey. And David's eight years within the walls of the Idaho State Penitentiary may have been a mistake. David is like he's thinking that and not like this is literally my body's reaction to like it's like a trauma response right, to yeah. this event. But I guess that, you know, that's a sort of, um, you know, mental health thing that is not going to come along, you know, for another hundred years. It would be such a strange occurrence. But oh, I really wish that we had this this letter in his file because I, I want to mm-hmm. know, like, the exact language. There was just kind of a, a breakdown of it in the newspaper. And it was like, oh, my God, can you imagine you've pled you're saying i am not guilty i would not poison him i was hoping it was water under the bridge i was trying to you know create peace because right well and and like yeah if he thought like if he started reacting weird he like smashed the bottle to be like oh crap maybe there's something in it and like you know when you're panicked there's like yeah maybe running like that makes him look guilty but i feel like it also could be like oh crap everyone's gonna think that i did this and so he like ran you know like yeah yeah 
I know. I think. I think him running. That was what. That's where the burden of guilt kind of was mm-hmm. placed. That like, what were you running from? Why did mm-hmm. you have to run? And why'd you mm-hmm. hop on a horse and you know go all the way to the reservation? That's. It seemed it. It seemed desperate for sure. So, I mean, despite this letter, David still f- served out nearly one third of his sentence and was discharged from the prison on May tenth, nineteen o nine. So. He returns to Oakley in Cache County, and the next month, June 17th, 1909, he was married to a woman named Ida Taylor, so he did not go back with Agatha Wells. Dang. I mean, feels like feels like that should have happened, though. Like I know. Uh, oh, well. Maybe she got married again before. You know, while we're researching this, like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing the story. I see the arch going, and I'm thinking, oh, he gets out. He, oh, here's a marriage record. Oh, it's going to be Agatha. They're going to live happily ever after. And, mm. and it's, it's, it's a disappointment. So, <laughs> Ida Taylor. Ida Taylor, yeah. And she's born in Basin, Idaho in 1892. So she was about 16 years old, while David, at this time, would have been approaching his 30th birthday. In the 1910 census, he was living with Ida, his brother John, and his sister-in-law and niece in Oakley. And Ida was actually listed as the wage earner in the family, working as a sanitarian. It wasn't long until their presence in the community was being threatened. On May 9th, 1910, both kid brothers were actually arrested on a charge of horse stealing. It was suspected that they stole the horses of Cleveland Bates, but while they were locked in the jail, Cleveland's horses appeared back on his property. A letter arrived from County Attorney T. Bailey Lee on behalf of the kid brothers, David and John, that was published in the Oakley Herald, which I found pretty enlightening, particularly to the plight of the formerly incarcerated. He wrote, quote, Prior to the arrest of these men, the officers had been quietly endeavoring for 10 days to get possession of evidence to entangle them, but not a man, woman, or child in the county proffered any. The air was rife with hearsay and tangible and unconnected inferences. There was no direct evidence forthcoming to any official, notwithstanding persistent inquiry was being made. It must not be forgotten that these men were held for a crime committed in Utah, if committed at all, that no complaint has ever been issued in Utah. Therefore, and that, even at this writing, no one has come forward to swear out or offer to swear out against them, any charge of which our courts have jurisdiction, end quote. Soon after this letter hit the newspapers, the brothers were released from the jail. Fortunately, David did seem to have a plan to provide for the family. He went to Burley and stopped at a general store to ask for a job, and he walked out with a new pair of gloves, a literal five-finger discount for his five fingers. The next day, October 21st, 1910, David saw another opportunity. A post truck was unattended in front of the station, and he snatched a mail pouch and took off into the sagebrush. He stopped after a few hundred yards and began rifling through the mail for valuables. After pilfering what he could, he returned to town and bought a ticket to Portland, Oregon for himself and Ida. When the mailman discovered the pouch missing, he immediately alerted police and they investigated. They followed tracks out into the sagebrush where they found the pouch, along with several torn up letters and pieces of mail. Sitting in some bunch grass nearby was the new pair of gloves he had stolen the day before. 
These were taken to the shop where the owner recognized them immediately and described the man that had inquired about the job the day before that he suspected of stealing the gloves. When the train arrived in Portland, David was immediately arrested by authorities. They found a woman's gold watch and a hat pin which had been registered in the packages and two bills of the Postal Department. He was red-handed. He was extradited back to Idaho for trial, where he remained in the county jail for six months. This time, he wasn't reckoning with state authorities. He was dealing with federal authorities. Mm -hmm. Originally, he put in a not guilty plea, but just before his sentencing hearing in April 1911, he changed his plea to guilty. The newspaper reported that if he had not changed his plea, his sentence would have been much heavier. Plus, quote, the fact that he has a wife but 19 years of age, end quote. He was finally sentenced to three years in federal prison at Leavenworth, Kansas, and a $250 fine. And he was taken to Kansas, and I believe his prison number there was number 7511. Now, I couldn't find anything particular about his time while incarcerated at Leavenworth. I did find that in 1912, the first baseball team was created at the institution, and the equipment was furnished by authorities while uniforms were made in the prison tailor shop much like our outlaw team at the Idaho State Penitentiary. And David, a skilled tailor, may have been put to work actually making these baseball uniforms. Hmm. Several write-ups in Kansas newspapers called for more work for prisoners, as many were extremely idle. So road construction jobs uh, at the prison were established, which may have been where David could have been employed as well. Uh, There's also a trial that year to allow prisoners to smoke through a daily tobacco allowance, and the warden noted that the prisoners that smoke were essentially worthless work-wise for the first few weeks as they battled their cravings for nicotine. So he actually started to allow enough tobacco for about three cigarettes a day to stave off cravings starting uh, while David was incarcerated there. So I thought that was kind of an interesting kind of progressive ideas that were going on while he was incarcerated there. David was released in 1914 and returned to his home in southern Idaho. Again, almost immediately, he was in trouble. He was arrested after allegedly stealing a horse, taking it from a hitch in Oakley, and riding it to Murtaugh, just over 30 miles northwest of Oakley, where it was found. He was arrested and lodged in the jail in Albion, again. On May 7, 1914, a night guard was locking the cells up, and David struck up this nice little conversation with him. And the guard got so caught up in the conversation that he actually forgot to lock David's cell door. (sighs) This guard sat down, and he didn't realize he didn't lock David's door. And as David just sat there and chatted with him, he continued to add coal to this little stove, keeping the place nice and warm. As he watched the guard slowly dip off into sleep, David opened his door and walked right out the front of this jail. (laughs) And the guard didn't realize the mistake until early the next morning. David would later admit to newspapers that he actually had friends who, who helped him with this escape. So they could have maybe knocked out this guard because the guard said, I have no idea. I woke up. David was gone. The door was open. I have no idea. The next day, the funniest newspaper article actually came out that said, quote, Kid is an expert when it comes to getting away, but he's a failure in staying away, so he will probably show up again soon. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> oh, I love it. I Just to, like, egg him on, too, because he's totally. probably reading these things. Totally. So 
I, I had a little bit of a difficult time following his trail at, at, at first, but then found that he headed east to Nebraska, and he was a trained tailor, so it came in handy for his next heist. He connected with a 60-year-old German tailor in DeWitt, Nebraska, named Henry Untite. On January 20th, 1915, David and Henry robbed the Bonebright and Bunt of Cortland, $200 in silks and clothing, and about $1,000 in jewelry. They robbed the place the same night as a snowstorm, which actually covered up their tracks. Hmm. Uh, but a pair of new trousers were actually discovered heading in the direction of DeWitt a few days later with the Cortland Merchants logo on the label. So police... They had a direction to follow, and they investigated and found a local tailor shop owned there by a man named Henry Untite, a six-year-old German tailor. He had reportedly taken a large shipment to his sister's house in Bennington, Nebraska, that weekend, and when police tracked it down and confiscated the chest, they discovered the stolen goods, and Henry bless his soul, immediately squealed on David Kidd, whom he said planned the whole heist. Fortunately for police, David Kidd, he had been busted a few days before on a charge of bootlegging in DeWitt. Jeez, he had sold about please. 45 no, He sold 45 cents worth of whiskey to a man named Carson O'Rourke, and he was busted and pled guilty to selling liquor without a license and was serving a 30-day sentence in the county jail for it. Police soon questioned him, and David heard about the German tailor's confession. Quote, Kid is said by the officers to be highly incensed with Untite, and the latter is being kept at the city jail because Kid has sworn vengeance upon him for turning informer, and the officers fear that if Untite were taken to the county jail, Kid would manage to wreak his vengeance upon him. End quote. On top of all this, a letter arrived from Twin Falls calling for David to be brought back to Idaho on horse stealing and escaping jail if officials in Nebraska did not charge him. <laughs> so he's, again, he's in the uh -huh. grasp. David Nathaniel Kidd arrived on April 15, 1915, to the Nebraska State Penitentiary in Lincoln on a one to seven year sentence on a charge of burglary. He's given the number 6538. Henry Untite actually pled guilty to the charge of receiving and concealing stolen property and was sentenced to 60 days in the county jail. When David was dropped off to prison authorities, the sheriff reportedly, quote, heaved a sigh of relief, end quote, now that this desperate criminal was no longer his responsibility. The sheriff's wife had actually discovered that David had sawed through one of the bars of his cell and would most likely have escaped if he had not been discovered in the act of sawing through the second bar with a pair of scissors that he somehow got his hands on. Authorities speculated that he bled guilty to bootlegging in order to give him 30 days to escape from that county jail. Gee, Jeez. So honestly, I couldn't find really anything more about his incarceration in Nebraska or even when he was released. I actually don't know where David was living or working during World War One or the Roaring Twenties. It appears that he probably stayed out of trouble, or if he was in trouble, he probably served time under aliases. It's not until late 1933 that I found David was working around Burley, Idaho. He would state that he was in Burley on business, but was living in Denver, Colorado with his wife. 
David was arrested after enticing a sheep herder to separate 86 sheep from a flock and drive them about 35 miles towards Burley and into the foothills. He was busted for stealing these sheep, and when authorities heard about his lengthy record, he was handed a new sentence back in the Idaho State Penitentiary about 33 years after his last incarceration in 1901 for the poisoning. So his third intake, D.N. Kidd, and he also came went under the name R.S. Taylor, which I thought was kind of interesting, mm-hmm. um, crime grand larceny, received March 11th, 1934, sentenced not less than one nor more than 14 years, age 54 now. Occupation, Taylor and Presser. He was 149 pounds. He was living in Denver, Colorado, and was married. His teeth were false. He had burn scars on his shins, his upper right thighs, and his left wrist. I didn't see much in his file, except for this letter that he wrote in September 1934, this lengthy letter to the governor, which documented a list of reasons why he thought he should be paroled. One, the crime for which I am sentenced was committed by three people. Each of us were sentenced one to 14 years. At the time of my sentence, they had not been apprehended, but were a short time after I received my sentence. They applied for a commuted sentence, receiving 90 days in the county jail, serving less than 30 days. I asked for this privilege, but I was told it was too late to ask. So essentially... His companions, they were busted after him. He was already in the penitentiary. They were finally captured, and they were given basically 30 days in jail while he was giving at least Mm. a year in prison. Two, there's no evidence showing that one had more to do with the crime than the other. There was no loss of property or money to anyone. Three, for 18 years, I have been a respected citizen of Denver, Colorado. For a good share of that time, a businessman of that city. It was only through the tragic death of my wife and this terrible depression with the loss of my business that I was overcome with grief and took part in a crime for which I have regretted ever since. This could be the truth right here. Maybe he did start a new business and and started a whole new life in Denver. Four, during my residence in Denver, Colorado, I have accumulated property worth about $10,000. I stand a chance of losing this unless I can return shortly. Five, if not possible to have my freedom, if I could have a set time, I could then make plans with my attorneys there for saving what I can of my property and saving of a lifetime. Six, upon my release, I shall return to Denver, Colorado and become a useful citizen. Seven, I shall be more than glad to answer any and all questions the Honorable Pardon Board may wish to ask about my plans and my redemption. Now, this seemed to be fairly effective as he was actually released after a year in the penitentiary on April 3rd, 1935. He stayed out of trouble and never returned for just over a year. (laughs) At around 2 a.m. on July 5th, 1936, R.L. Taylor, as he was going, better known as David Kidd, drove to the premises of a man on Bannock Creek in Power County. He grabbed two horses, tied them to the rear of his car, and drove to the Portnuff Fish Hatchery near the airport. Why a hatchery? He was going to sell the horses valued at more than $200 to the manager to be ground up for fish food. Oh. He was actually arrested at the gate of the hatchery, and I couldn't find actually any documentation of this crime in the newspaper. I only found this information from the intake form from Hmm. the prosecuting attorney. 
He returned for the last time to the Idaho State Penitentiary as number 5334 on September 16, 1937. This is the most redeeming aspect of David Kidd's story that really attaches him to the history of the prison. In 1936, the yard of the women's ward was actually extended. And if you visit today and you walk behind the main dormitory building, you'll actually see a large grassy area that slopes up. And this was all an extension to the original wall that was added on. And if you walk around the outside of the wall and look up, you'll see a capstone with December 1937, Warden Jess. And you might remember that that was also the month that Douglas Van Vlack committed suicide, thus ending the leadership of Warden Jess. But how does this connect to David Kidd? He actually served as the overseer of the work for the extension of that wall at the Women's Ward. In a letter to the Pardon Board on February 2nd, 1938, David, writing as his alias R.S. Taylor, wrote, quote, I very respectfully plead that my sentence be commuted, that I be granted a conditional pardon subject to a, a job to go immediately upon my release. After looking over my work in connection with the building of the new wall around the warden's department, the manager at the time assured me that upon my release, the Boise Stoneworks would give me employment with their concern. With regard to my work, I performed as overseer of the work in connection with the building of the women's department. I believe my work will speak for itself, and I very gladly refer you to the officials here, end quote. And David was released for the last time a year later on September 29th, 1938. I only found that he was arrested again in December 1939 with counterfeit (laughs) coins, and instead of sending him to federal prison once again, the judge actually only gave him 60 days in jail and a $100 fine. Hmm. Besides that, it appears David may have retired from his lifetime of criminal acts. And according to the collection of info on David from Ancestry.com, he died in June 1950. I couldn't find an exact date. I couldn't find any information about his last days. I couldn't find an obituary. So honestly, the last decade of his life remains a mystery to me. But that is the long-storied career of David Kidd and... Honestly, I was just hoping to tell you a love story today, and I didn't realize I went down this lifetime of crime. So, <laughs> next time you gotta do a control left function in the uh, the inmate catalogs. Honestly, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, very interesting, very interesting life, and like varied crimes. Like a lot of times, you know, they're in for like very similar crimes, but he was in for like a different one every time, right? Yeah. Crazy. I did not anticipate so many repeat offenses, and not just in Idaho. Uh-huh. And yeah, again, like he didn't just commit forgeries; like he, he was all over the place. All right, Good job. Everybody. Thank you, Sky. Good job to you. That was a fun episode. Thank you. It was a fun episode, <laughs> and our next one should be fun as well. We're gonna do a little Halloween spooky, maybe a little bit less family friendly yes. episode. Yeah, um, a little dark. In two weeks. Uh, right before Halloween. Yeah. Thank you again all for listening. Do your own time. Do your own number. We'll talk to you soon. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. We have a podcast Instagram as well. 
You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. Thank you.